0: to the man-made monster Guess. i am rob 138 and we continue on with b movie month i am here with my partner in crime bob stank how are you sir
1: doing all right how about yourself
0: i'm good man i'm real good good um let's jump right into uh sharing is scaring because there's no time like the present so what has been scaring you these past two weeks bob stank
1: so uh we actually sat down and finally watched M. night Shyamalan's* old was impressed Highly recommend Um, good social political issues at the end. Good moral. Is it right? Is it wrong? Kind of stuff and uh, good acting, you know, pretty decent effects.
0: Cool. Cool. I, uh, I myself
1: uh, find that M night Shyamalan style has not aged. Well, this, this is a little different for him. And I, I liked it, you know, and I, I would say, give it a shot. It's, it's nothing like the more recent stuff he's done.
0: That's cool, I uh, I kind of lost uh, fell off with him when the village came out and sucked hard. So, what else have you been up to there, partner?
1: Went and saw Jurassic World Dominion Wednesday on a rare date night that my wife and I got. Um, as a uh, Jurassic slash dinosaur fan, it's it exists, it's there. Um, I wouldn't say it's bad, but I wouldn't say it's good. It's just a uh... would you say that
0: Jurassic World did, in fact, uh, find a way? Very much so. I think that's the third time we've used that gag in the past three episodes.
1: I'm cool with it. Yeah. It's Jeff Goldblum. To be totally honest, Goldblum, Sam Neill, and Laura Dern stole the show. So.
0: Probably not the last time we talk about Sam Neill this episode, by the way. Fair enough. Um, What else you got? I know you said you've been playing some games here lately.
1: Yeah. help! Um getting into the uh, special edition limited run game shit, and that's just a rabbit hole. I don't feel like going down, but House of the Dead remake. Death's Door from from a uh, special reserve games and started the quarry last night.
0: Nice, I still gotta get the quarry, man. I really want to get that, but also I picked up Evil Dead when it came out. I barely had time to play it, so I'm with you. <laughs> um, as far as what's been uh, scaring me, uh, absolutely nothing. I haven't had time really for anything. Um, been I, I, I've been watching Obi Wan that I've been you know mostly disappointed with up until the most recent episode, um, which was pretty great. Um, still haven't watched Stranger Things for like we talked about a month ago. Uh, the only thing that I have watched is uh, this old '76 uh, dystopian kind of sexploitation flake, uh, things to come. Um, watched that on, I guess it was Wednesday. It's uh, it's not good at all. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think today I'm probably gonna, I got some work to do after the podcast for an actual job. But uh, afterwards, I think I'm going to finally sit down and watch the sadness on uh, Shudder. And Mad God just released a, kind of an animated horror thing that just came out on Shudder. So I'm going to check that out.
1: Okay.
0: That being said, we're going to move right into to our next Corman movie. Because I mean, if we're doing B-Movie Month, it's all about Roger Corman. We're mm-hmm. doing Galaxy of Terror. Galaxy of Terror was released in October of 1981 and tells the story of a motley space crew that are dispatched on a rescue mission where their worst fears are realized. Galaxy was produced by Roger Corman's New Worlds Pictures with a budget of 700,000. Though there is a rumor that once it became more and more effects heavy,
1: it mm-hmm. ballooned
0: to almost 2 million.
1: Really? I didn't see that yes. anywhere.
0: Okay. Uh, anyway, it was co written and directed by uh, B.D. Clark. Clark worked on other exploitation films, such as 1972's Hammer, starring Fred Williamson, and 1970's Naked Angels, though Galaxy of Terror would be his last film. Uh, Before we get into Galaxy, I actually wanted to touch on Alien and its relationship to Roger Corman. Uh, 1979, one of the all-time greatest horror science fiction films ever would be released. Ridley Scott's seminal slasher in space film, Alien. Though it was a huge success at the box office and is certainly revered now, back in 1979, Alien did not impress critics at all. So why do I bring up Alien? Other than the fact that Galaxy of Terror is an Alien cash-in. Well, because Corman's history with Alien goes far beyond cash-ins, and I thought it's probably worth mentioning here. Back during the pre-production stages of Alien, Dan O'Bannon, of Return of the Living Dead fame, but also the writer of Alien, Upon completing the script, sent it to Corman with the idea of Roger Corman producing. This, however, all fell apart when 20th Century Fox made a ban an offer. So somewhere out in the multiverse, Papa Stank, there was a timeline where Roger Corman produced 1979's Alien for $700,000, and it's actually this movie.
1: And the funny part is, is like, I, when I read that, I envisioned it, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I kind of want to see that.
0: I mean, we did today. Well, the other
1: day. arguably, arguably. I just want to see the xenomorph with Corman's effects, though.
0: I'd argue that the uh, the shadow creature that Balon takes on mm. on the bridge is kind of like his version of the xenomorph. Yeah, I can see that. So, regardless, when you consider the amount of alien captions Corman produced, Galaxy, Forbidden World, Terror Within, Dead Space, Terror Within Two, I think he might have been just a little pissed that he missed out on Alien. A little bit, just a little bit.
1: Yeah, I get that.
0: So after Abandon went with the offer from 20th Century Fox, Corman basically said, fuck it, let's make an alien knockoff. Corman offered his unnamed, unwritten alien film to director B.D. Clark based on his success with the Corman-produced biker exploitation film Naked Angels. B.D. Clark would bring his longtime uh, friend and co-writer of Naked Angels, Mark Siegler, into co write script. Ironically, this would be the last thing that Siegler would write though he would go on to act with background roles on 89's Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, as well as NYPD Blue. The two wanted to make Galaxy more psychological instead of just making Alien knockoff and decided that the horrors in the film would be the fears of the character. Um, That's kind of thematic with the Corman Alien knockoffs. He he keeps getting these filmmakers that are like, you know, Alien knockoff, that sounds good, but I want to do this. right. And they kind of inject their own flavor into it that Corman kind of always pushes back against.
1: I mean, Corman seemed like a guy that knew what he wanted, and if he didn't get what he wanted, that was a problem.
0: I mean, the guy's got over 400 film credits under his belt. He's clearly successful and knows what he's doing. Well, rather, at least knows how to make money. Exactly. So, uh, with the story in place, Corman decided to increase the budget to compete with other Hollywood films, and he put out a casting call for the then-titled Planet of
1: Horrors. That title was awful.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, that's that's why they got uh, no responses. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so then the title of the film was changed to Quest, which was the name of the ship in the film, which I think is actually a pretty solid title. Yeah,
1: no, I, I actually didn't buy that.
0: Um, I actually like it more than Galaxy of Terror, <laughs> honestly.
1: Well, because Gal- Galaxy of Terror takes it back to the schlocky, low-budget sound.
0: Right, but I think Quest is actually more in line with the themes of the movie. No, I get that. You know, that's, that's pretty well. Cool. Anyway, Corbin put out a new uh, casting call. One of the applicants for Quest? Well, it was this young fella by the name of Robert Inland. I'm not sure if anyone would remember him, however. He started in 1976, eaten alive, and then signed on for Quest. But I'm not sure. I, I really don't think he went on to do much else after this movie. I
1: was going to say who?
0: I don't know, man. But, like we talked about on um, uh, Forbidden World, um. Hit or miss with Corman's, Corman's crews, man. They are, they're either Scorsese's or they're Robert England. They go on to be successful or they're nobodies. <laughs> Roger Corman would also send a copy of the script to uh, the legendary and super, super awesome Sid Haig, who I did, in fact, get drunk with, um, who uh, actually loved it. He called Corman and said he would do the film under one condition, which Corman took as wanting more money and quickly shut that shit down. Uh, Haig laughed and then told Corman that he did not want more money. He told Corman that he felt his character should be borderline mute and wanted to play it as such. Corman, Clark, and Haig all agreed, and so then Haig signed on for Quest. Actress Taffy O'Connell auditioned and was a huge fan of Roger Corman. For anyone unfamiliar with O'Connell, she's basically television royalty with roles in Starsky and Hutch, Chips, Wonder Woman, Happy Days, The Incredible Hulk, Laverne and Shirley, Knight Rider, and Dallas. Uh, She also played Honey in Corman's Women in Prison, exploitation film, Caged Fury. O'Connell was thrilled to do something that was less wholesome, um, which is what she had been known for. Though upon discovering that there would be nudity, her agent fought against it, but she agreed, and we will discuss this, in much more detail later. Speaking of television royalty, Erin Moran, Joni loves Chachi, uh, she would sign on for the film. That's right, Joni herself from Happy Days. Uh, Moran had originally agreed to do nudity, but ultimately negotiated for a more violent death instead. One more thing before I toss it off to you, Mr. Stankalicious. Another famous genre actor that flirted with the idea of signing on to Quest. Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill. After filming The Empire Strikes Back, Hamill had interest in doing a horror film Horman attempted to bring him on, but it fell apart. There were also other people involved in this film. There's Stanky
1: Boy. Lay it on me. There was a guy whose uh, name slightly sounded familiar. Bill Paxton? Plaxton? Paxton? Never heard of him. No, same. He was only able to get bit parts in films like Crazy Mama and Stripes, but auditioned for the role in film and did not get it. Although he was hired on as a set dresser. So he did work on the film where he actually struck up a, a relationship with James Cameron. And we all know where that went. Alec Gillis was brought on for prosthetic effects. His credits include the makeup department for Friday the 13th, part four, Jumanji, X-Files, Spider-Man, 2011's The Thing, X-Men First Class, IT, IT Chapter Two, and The Nun, as well as special effects credits on JAWS 3D, Aliens. The Monster Squad, Death Becomes Her, Demolition Man, 1995's Mortal Kombat, Starship Troopers, Alien vs. Predator, Alien vs. Predator Requiem, Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. So, needless to say, we had one person end up being successful out of this film. Dude kept busy. (laughs) And uh, the uh, same effects team from Forbidden World, the Skotak brothers, were also brought on for a visual effects department. But weirdly, Dennis was credited and not Robert. Yeah, that's a little bizarre. Yeah.
0: Especially considering, I think it was uh, Robert and Jim Cameron that designed the maggot. Mm-hmm. I believe, right? The the major player in this film, and this this I mean, this might as well be a Jim Cameron episode, not a Roger Corman episode, <laughs> because this is basically his movie. Was Jim Cameron? So let's talk about Jim Cameron and his work on this film. Back in the late seventies, Alec Gillis, who, as you said, did the visual and prosthetic effects on this film as well as other Corman productions, went to apply at Corman Studios to work on Battle Beyond the Stars. He thought he might have a better shot at getting a job if he brought someone else with him. So he brought his friend, that friend being Jim Cameron. And in my head, they interviewed as a team like in Step Brothers. That'd be fine. That's my head canon. So at this point, Cameron had little to no film experience and was a college dropout who became a truck driver who wrote scripts in his free time. And boy, oh boy, Does that not sound familiar? There may still be hope for me. In 1978, Cameron wrote, produced, directed, and did production design for a short film entitled Xenogenesis. His idea was that he wanted to do something to showcase his skills enough that he could turn his short into a feature film. Um, Though it featured some groundbreaking work, no one was really interested. The short eventually made its way Uh, to the hands of Chuck Comiskey, who was the production coordinator on the television show Jason of Star Command, and he hired Cameron to work on Battle Beyond the Stars. Cameron, having impressed on Battle Beyond the Stars, would be brought on to work on Quest. Cameron would work his way up the ranks on this film. He was brought on as an assistant to the special effects department, but quickly became the head of the special effects department. From there, he became the production designer, and then became the head of production design, and then the second unit director. Cameron had handled so much of the film that when Corman visited the set, he would head straight to Cameron's office. So let's get into the release of uh, what was the first title: "Forbidden Terrors" or "Horrors of the Deep" or
1: that? "Planet of Terror"?
0: Sure, Quest. <laughs> whatever it's called, uh, I think it's yeah, it's Quest at this point. So
1: yeah, it is Quest.
0: After filming, Quest was finally renamed to. Drum roll, please.
1: Mind Lord, infinity of terror. That's probably the worst one.
0: Not very good alone. Nah. Uh, they sent that out for a rating, and it came back with an X rating because of the infamous maggot rape scene. To get the film to an R rating, most of the scenes with the maggot quote-unquote thrusting had to be cut as well as its um, finish. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Corman watched this cut and was pretty happy with it, though he no longer liked the score. He wanted something more electronic and had it redone. Uh, With a new score, the audio team had to make a new mix completely. While doing so, they tweaked some things and made some of the sound effects like the bones cracking, liquid gussing, stuff like that louder. With a new audio mix, the film then needed to be sent back in for another rating, which came back with an X (laughs) due to the intensity of sound effects. So the team had to go back in and remix the audio and soften all the effects. Um, The film was released as Mind Warp, and imagine this, it did not do well at all. Right. Screenings were very middle of the road. It played in a few theaters, but it didn't sell well at all, and critics generally were disgusted by the film. So, mm. also there was rumor of a lot of them being really bored with it. The prints were recalled and renamed Galaxy of Terror. And the film was pushed back out with a new marketing campaign that pushed the maggot rape scene, and included a poster that had nothing to do with the film, much like Forbidden World, yeah. who somehow wound up with a poster that has more to do with this film than that film. Figure that out. But, so that, that artwork was done on this film, the, right. the poster for Forbidden World. Right. Why didn't they just use that? I would argue that's actually a better poster than the one for Galaxy of Terror.
1: Right.
0: So, yeah. anyway. Uh, the film became a hit based only curiosity of the maggot rape scene, and though initially against the scene, Clark and Siegel had admitted that it was that scene that caused the success of the film. And Corman had been right about including it.
1: So I got got a quick little tidbit on the maggot rape scene. So I talked to Kangas about some potential film works here coming up. And um, he was asking about the Todd. You know, he's been checking in on it listening to it and things like that. And he goes, well, what are you doing next? I told him we're doing a Galaxy of Terror. And he goes, Really? I remember seeing that in theaters back in the, uh, what was it? What year it come out? 81. And he goes, I remember going to the theaters and seeing that all because I wanted to see this woman naked with slime all over getting raped by the maggot. That's the only thing I remember from the whole movie. So there you go.
0: Yeah. Also, I mean, it's, it's, she was a known actress, actor from all of her yeah. wholesome television roles. So that was another thing. Like exactly. what? she's doing this.
1: Exactly. So,
0: so, well, with that said, uh, Mr. Kangas, thank you for listening. I uh, I think I speak for Stank as well, when I say we really appreciate it.
1: Prepare yourself for the ultimate battle.
0: Galaxy of Terror. Hell has just been relocated. It orbits a burned out star at the edge of the galaxy.
1: It's been waiting a billion years to scare you to death. Trapped in a living maze of terror. What are the odds of us getting out of here? What are the odds? Stranded astronauts Edward Albert and Aaron Moran battle hordes of hideous shadow demons, encounter the razor-sharp living glass, brave the pit of doomed souls just to discover the only way out is death.
0: (laughs) So Galaxy of Terror. We open with the opening scene from The Terminator. Seriously. This is the opening shot of the Terminator, which totally checks out because of Jim Cameron. This uh this film is kind of like a proof of concept for the rest of his career, honestly. Pretty much, yeah. Um, I immediately love the sound design. That's that's the first thing that I, I noted here. And again, you know, I, I've I've i gonna try to tackle this as a first time you order, though I've seen this like fucking i don't know how many times but just for you know clarity's sake i'm gonna tackle this like that um so yeah sound design uh poor for the course when it comes to corman sci-fi movies all of them have really great sound design um this is no different we cut to a pretty intense chase scene inside of a crashed ship so far there are no signs of fast food containers on the wall though i reckon that will not last long the terrified dude sees some corpses and then slams into a wall. We then cut to some exposition from Mitri and uh, the, the Master. Um, they're, they're sitting there, his head's kind of glowing red, and they're, they're talking oh. about stuff and things. Um, this kind of reminded me of the, the exposition dump in the beginning of Forbidden World, where they're just talking and nothing really makes sense. Mm. Yeah, so uh, she says... She plays at the bidding of the all-powerful planet master of Xerxes. Uh, Our dude on the screen looks like Chief Palpatine from The Phantom Menace. Uh, Not the first or last Star Wars reference in this chat. Uh, This scene is kind of weird because we basically have no idea what they're talking about. Mm
1: -hmm. We're just kind of
0: dropped in. Uh, The planet master tells Emperor Palpatine that he will personally select the crew and that they are not to be informed of any of this, whatever this is. He then tells Mitri that the waiting is over. We cut to the ship where Captain Trantor, played by Grace Zabriskie, who would later go on to play in
1: Twin Peaks, uh, is also in the quarry. That com- that completely checks out. Yeah, I didn't know that, but yeah, that checks out. I didn't know until last night when I started it, and she's the last credit, and she is the like narrator.
0: That is fucking rad. Yeah. Awesome. Um, she tells the crew that there will be a liftoff in 30 seconds. We then get a montage of the crew preparing. Robert England then uses O'Connell as a seatbelt since his seat won't work. And then we have
1: liftoff. I did have to watch that scene a few times.
0: Oh, dude, it's great. It's, it's like very tongue in cheek. And you know that both actors are enjoying that scene.
1: Yes. Like, it's just
0: like you can tell that their joy because of how silly and stupid it is, is like genuine. Mm mm-hmm. Um, We get a few scenes to establish some characteristics and relationships between our crew. Um, Balon being the main, like, uh, leader guy here. He comes off as a total dick. The captain then immediately decides to jump to hyperspace, and the crew straps back up. They all think this is insanity. There is some relevant, albeit brief, mentioning of the captain being the only survivor from the uh, Hespers incident. I think that's what it was. The, um... The team approaches the planet. There's some really tense music here, and the team looks concerned. i got to say, ship looks awesome, uh, and I still haven't noticed one styrofoam container yet. Yet. Yeah. So far. Yeah. So far.
1: Yeah, we'll go uh, with that, yes. Yeah.
0: Suddenly, there's a malfunction, and the captain tries a manual override. She says she's going to try to spin them out, and this epically fails. The captain throws her hands up and says there's nothing that she can do. The end. We're all dead. Yep, the end. No, that's not the end. Sorry, guys. So she realizes they're going down, uh, just not as fast, and she's able to crash land the ship. We continue with the emotion picture. The crew recovers a bit, and we establish that they should be able to breathe in the atmosphere. The captain tells the commander that she got them there, and the rest is up to him. We then get a really cool shot of the crew exiting the ship. Let's uh, let's talk about what the crew's wearing here. Their fashion. Uh, sense as it were, Mr. Stank?
1: So the costumes are actually really cool on it. Uh, they, were they were modified, repurposed suits from Battlestar Galactica in 1978. Uh, basically just changed the patches, tags, things like that. Uh, the backpacks themselves weighed 40 pounds, which caused them to sag and sometimes pulled the actors off balance. In addition, they kept falling off due to the weight and extra wire was used to attach them to the costumes. So,
0: Could you imagine having an extra 40 pounds strapped to your back? Yes. Same because I think we've both had it done, yeah. <laughs> but, but, the, but like claiming, like climbing those sets on top because there's a lot of debris and rubble that those the actors are climbing all of these things, uh, attached to their backs. Also, I want to point out keeping with the because this is a the theme of the episode now, even though it's an alien knockoff, gonna be a lot of Star Wars references and keeping with the theme of knockoffs, Battlestar Galactica, knockoff of Star Wars,
1: right?
0: So, there you go. We established that a Luma has some sort of ESP-like sensitivity or something. I, uh, as many times as I've seen this lick, I can never quite make out what she says. She says, I'm something sensitive, and I can never quite hear that word. I don't know if she said... I thought at first she said life-sensitive. I'm like, well, that's just dumb. <laughs> then the film's called Galaxy of Terror. So <laughs> um, that said, Balon then tells her if there's something to be fa- found... He will find it himself, and I feel like he is going to be a real problem for the team. Uh, The team enter a wrecked facility, and I finally see a food container on the wall. Uh, A corpse drops uh, down for a jump scare, and Sid Haig kills it some more before Balon then kills it some more by setting it on fire. Balon sets up the teams, and he says he's in command, thus establishing that he's going to be one of those uh, power trip assholes. Now, you had told me that you thought that this corpse, like falling down, was a nod
1: to. It's not no, not that it was a nod to Forbidden World. It was that Forbidden World may have nodded to that shot when Earl is found in the rocks and comes falling down. It was an extremely similar shot to me. It, it similar feel. I just missed the. Oh my god, it's Earl! Awful line. I mean, <laughs> I guess I guess I could see that, but also like that's a trope too that it like hope's falling
0: for it's just a trope for a jump scare i it can is. see why you know with both these films being similar in
1: terms i think i think if we wouldn't have watched them back to back it probably wouldn't have really paid no mind to me but you know knowing that knowing the the reason forbidden world exists based off of this movie had me thinking more in that line
0: yeah i could see that um so we go with the uh, and uh odd And off through a corridor, Um, I want to point out that for some reason, the styrofoam containers on the walls are not nearly as prominent as they are in Forbidden World. And I I think that's because Cameron's handprints are all over this movie. Uh, He's much more involved in the production, whereas Forbidden World, they just reuse the sets. So they're lit differently, they're shot differently, they're less prominent.
1: Yeah, and in, in Forbidden World, I made the comment that they weren't even painted in this they almost looked tan because of the way they were lit yeah whereas in forbidden world we know for a fact was shot later and they were just that plain white styrofoam mcdonald's thing some of them still had ketchup in them. Right. right so for, for me like it definitely didn't hit as hard i mean i was looking and i was looking hard because i couldn't wait to see him <laughs> but yeah i was like wait a minute they didn't repaint them white no they just lit them properly
0: yeah um Cabron says there may be survivors, and Sid Haig poses with his badass space ninja stars. We cut to a terrified Koss, who threw up moments ago, uh, getting scared by a loose cable, which you thoroughly enjoyed.
1: Oh, God, that scream just... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Dude, seriously? You are so, a badass space person, like, come on.
0: Well, I don't know how badass he is, but uh, he's... Fair enough at all. Yeah, apparently not at all. He's uh, he's on his own. Uh, great move, Balon. Send the guy that was shaken up on the ship that needed a pep talk, and then puked immediately on the planet, out by himself. Real leadership skills there, Balon, you dickhead.
1: Yeah, he's awful.
0: We cut back to our badass duo. They discover a corpse and immediately incinerate it, and the console that it's laying on, which sets off an alarm, we cut back to Koss, who is being stalked by a giant beetle. I just decided I was going to call it a big, bad Beetleborg. That's right. So, um, yeah. He screams and then shoots at nothing. We cut back to Balon and Aluma for no reason, and she tells him to wait. That seemed like the cut. Why? It's just to remind us that they're there, I guess, but it served mm. really no purpose. Cut back to cost. The dude is, like, clearly should not be alone, let alone on this mission alone. all. Mm. Um, we get a... Clearer shot of the monster. Now it looks maybe more like a mantis. Um, Pretty nice chase scene with some cool-ass music. Uh, Koss runs into Baylon. He gets pissed at him. Gabriel and Kewod meet back up, and they all decide to go to the ship. Aluma says, if I didn't know any better, I'd say it was coming for Koss. And my note here is, at this point, what? What is coming for Koss? You haven't established that you've seen or felt anything yet. Right. But it is coming for Koss. Um, somehow, they leave Kaz on the floor in the facility. <laughs> they all go back to the ship and leave him there. Uh, he calms himself and then dies immediately to some sort of insect-like creature. Um, back on the ship, we find out that Aluma had sensed a life form on Kaz that disappeared when he died. But how did they know that he died? They left him there and went back to the ship.
1: There's a lot of holes in this story. Yeah,
0: there's some there's some significant continuity errors in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the captain then says that that is exactly what happened on Hespers. Uh, first, you don't see them, and then they're everywhere. So does the captain have the same ability as the Luma? <sighs> also, I just kind of noticed that uh, Balon looks like Todd Howard from Bethesda Studios. <laughs> who? Uh, I'll put it in the video.
1: Okay, um, I was going to say, I, definitely, uh, I know who he is. I just didn't even catch that.
0: It just works. Um We uh, then cut to Ranger and Damia. Um, They are performing an autopsy on what I assume is the bodies that they found. They ask if they found anything, and, well, no, they have not. Balon says the other crew wasn't safe, and neither are they. He says there are no survivors, and we established that there have been five deaths that are confirmed, and four are unaccounted for. The crew established that something was going on at point four one nine, and they have to go investigate. Uh, there's a pretty gnarly wide shot of the crew before they make their way to a pyramid. Awesome sound design. Once again, uh, the crew is in awe, and Aluma says that she doesn't sense life. She feels nothing at all, and she's never felt something so empty and so dead. And I say,
1: clearly, she has never dated me. I can't ask for that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the pyramid, bud. The pyramid was designed by Robert Stotak and James Cameron They filmed the miniature and it was displayed via front projector from Battle Beyond the Stars. They then had to cast stand in front of the rubble set and panned up to give the pyramid a sense of size and scope and to present the illusion that that the crew were standing in front of it, which is a very common, you know, uh, visual effect back then when you didn't have things like CG and whatnot, but still works very well.
0: It it actually looks really good.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Like it looks particularly good in a film of uh, a B film of this nature. Right. Um, we established that there is no service movement, but there is a negative density in the center. Balon asks Ilvar what he thinks. That's the commander, uh, Chief Palpatine, by the way. Mm-hmm. Ilvar agrees to investigate, and we get our teams, which are Balon, Aluma, and qod while Damia and Kabrin are going with Commander Ilvar. Um, and one, <laughs> real quick, I know they keep joking about uh, Bernard Barons, the actor who plays Ilvar, looking like Palpatine in the Phantom Menace, but he actually does have a Star Wars connection. Uh, He voiced Obi Wan Kenobi in Star Wars: The Return of the Jedi radio drama in 1996. Didn't know that. We are full of Star Wars references on a movie about an alien cash-in. There's a lot of cool shots in the pyramid here as the crew tries to find their way in. Uh, Ilvar wonders why the master put him in command of this mission, and that he's old and tired and wants to go home. Damia tells him he's not old. And then he hits on her by saying, I don't feel alone while I'm looking at you, before hmm. then falling off the pyramid. And I have to say, I don't feel like it was intentionally set up to be so, but that was hilarious.
1: Right. Oh uh, Yeah, with Corbin, you know, it wasn't meant to be funny, but.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah God forbid. <laughs> he he will get up and slap you if you laugh at something. Um, <laughs> the commander says that he lost his grip uh, again. Sound design here. Top-notch stuff. Uh, they make it to the top. And the commander looks down and has a great line about doubt and despair. Um, he seems kind of in a trance this entire time. Mm-hmm. Amy and Cabron are concerned about him. Uh, he suits up and descends down into the pyramid despite their protest. Uh, naturally, as he descends, the line snaps, but Cabrin catches it. We get a glimpse of some fleshy creature in some kind of hole in the wall. Um, mm-hmm. And then they lower him down further. The creature jumps out. Uh, latches himself on to um the commander it's all tentacle creature thing uh Mm. effects are really weird
1: i I made a comment about that so over the top and i i after you made that thing about the the effects got flagged for an x rating i get it now because they were so cartoonish and loud and like sucky not in a bad way but like a sucking sound but I did find that there was a uh, similarities to that design of that tentacle creature and the facehugger.
0: shows out mm-hmm. a little bit, I would say so. Um, so for me, the the, the sound uh, that these tentacles are making, it, like it sounds like something that should have been on a Nickelodeon show.
1: As I said, cartoony. Like, yeah,
0: it's just like, huh? <laughs> like everything is, seemed so far to be kind of serious, you know, arguably subdued at this mm-hmm. point. And then you get that, you're like, huh? <laughs> so, um. Cameron goes down after him, but all that is left is an empty harness. Back on the ship, the captain calls Ranger down to eat. The captain quips that the master sends meat and the devil sends the cook. Um, no idea. Yeah. The captain's telling a story and Ranger asks if it was the Hesperus incident. She tenses up and she says that this time she's ready. Back to the pyramid, we're with Balon, Aluma and Qad. Apparently, Balon found a body and vaporized it. Aluma reprimands him about it, and a door begins to open, and Kuwad throws his bitch-nass space ninja stars at it. <laughs> Aluma asks if the crystals will hold, and Qad just kind of shoots through this look like, how dare you question me?
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, Damia and Cabron show up for reasons. I thought they were investigating different parts of the pyramid. Why they're all in the same spot now is beyond me. Why even split up at all at that point? Cabring says they lost the commander and Balon tells him that he had no business being with them anyway. Damia says there was nothing left and says, damn wormholes. I hate worms, which is a little forced. F- there, there was nothing, nothing to like lead into that, uh-huh. but it was just written in. There was also, uh, there's a throwaway line somewhere that implies like her fear of like
1: Sexual stuff, intimacy, and stuff, yeah. I, yeah, I read, that. I read that too. And again, reinforced.
0: I disagree because I don't see it really anywhere. I think there's like one throwaway line that I think Balon makes that really isn't that, mm-hmm. but when you're thinking about it, like, well, oh, I guess it can be, but it's not. It's really, yeah, funny. no, I got you. Uh, Q Hod's crystal ninja star shatter and then they fire out the open door for some reason. Uh, Q Hod is upset and cabering tries to comfort him. They all head inside. Just kind of curious as to why they shot at the open door, but they're getting rid of the walkthrough. Uh, again, I noticed a severe lack of fast food containers in the ship design, and I am thoroughly disappointed. Uh, Balon tells Q-Hod to guard the entrance and hands him a blaster. Uh, this is where we get Sid Hag's one line in the entire movie, I live and die by the crystals.
1: Okay. Q-Hod
0: takes the blaster and as soon as Balon turns his head, he aims it at him, and I don't blame him one bit. Somebody, please shoot this piece of shit. <laughs> Qon throws a blaster down, and Cabern, uh again comforts him. I like Cabron. he's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Plus, he's got a bitch and stash.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, ju- I just like Sid Higgs' throw when he threw the blaster. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this um, we thing. get some
0: dialogue from Aloma about it being tightened there, which is once again some foreshadowing? I mean, it is. I mean, yeah. Um, she then says she'd rather dance on top of it than squeeze through it. Sign me up for that. Mm-hmm. Balon says, uh, let's get out of here. Luma says to wait. Balon gets pissed and tells them to follow him. Damien says she's going to go check on QHOD. Um, there must be some kind of passage of time here that we don't know about yeah. because they literally just got there and Balon's
1: like, yo, let's leave. Because it's just like there's the thing is too much exposition, but then when there's none at all and you have a time jump, or you know, it just doesn't make sense.
0: So something I've always wondered about this this movie in terms of that is was there an attempted like implied passage of time mm-hmm. um due to like the the isolation and just being in the presence of the pyramid that That's we possible. just don't know about.
1: But they didn't give anything on that. So.
0: Right, right. So, but it's just something I always like toyed with in my head. I'm like, maybe that's the case, but you know, whatever. Right. We cut back to Q-Hod who is losing his shit. He rips his jacket off. The door begins to close. He runs through it and his crystals reform. He's very, very happy about this until one of them stabs him directly in the wrist and goes inside of his body. This is super awesome effect. Uh, Q-Hod then karate chops his own goddamn arm off, <laughs> um, which seems like a perfectly logical decision. Uh, his severed arm then sucks the crystal star into his chest, and he dies. Let's talk about the wrist and the arm gag here. Mr. Stink.
1: So, I mean, it was a reverse shot with the crystal being in his arm, but it was a great latex arm gag. You know, it just, it looked really good. And again, one thing that I can say about both of these films is the special effects, considering budgetary confinements and all the stuff, are very, very solid. Uh, when he cuts his own arm off, it was a little silly looking but it just kind of adds to it. Uh, but the arm on the ground was done very well. Very uh, fake shimp throwback to Evil Dead nice. of somebody being under the floor, under the, under the uh, set, arm through with a stump appliance on the end. And uh, all we needed was for the hand to just do one of these to them. That would have been great.
0: It's funny, I was going to write an Evil Dead reference in my notes and send them to you, but I was like, you know what? I trust Snake. He'll make that <laughs> a reference. <Yeah. laughs>
1: But uh, no, that was one of the first real solid effects that I was impressed with within this film. But uh, the, the crystal thing was just cool. Well, again, like I said, you know,
0: Corman says it's a $700,000 budget, but there is a very strong rumor. And, you know, looking at the effects of the film, I'm inclined yeah. to believe it, that the budget did in fact balloon up to close to $2 million.
1: It's quite possible. Because
0: these are not subpar effects in, the, in this film. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they, they hold up. They hold mm-hmm. up. We cut back to the quest where Ranger is surprised that the cook, who is Core, uh, I believe, is reading yes. a real book. He can't seem to find the captain and says that she isn't answering. Uh, he says it rattles him, to which the cook forcefully tells him, don't let it, and that they'll go find her. I get some um, some alien synth vibes with Core mm-hmm. here. Um, probably intentional. We cut the Damien up. She finds the remains of Q-Hod and his arm, which is covered in maggots, and then she fries it, though one does crawl away. So let's talk about the maggot arm gag.
1: So that was uh, something that I found really interesting. Uh, James Cameron came up with the gag, and uh, it's reported that some of the crew were actually impressed that they thought Cameron trained maggots to act on Q, because whenever he'd say action, they would start wiggling and moving. So what he really did was he created a metal plate inside the fake arm that when you would plug it in, the electric current would go through it, which would then shock the maggots and make them wiggle. And then as soon as it said cut, you could unplug it and they would just stop. It was a really cool effect, very good engineering on his behalf and such a like a last minute kind of let's get this done effect. And then the one that crawls away is Maggie the maggot was affectionately named by the crew.
0: It was also referred to as um cameron's creature let's talk about the growth effect
1: yeah so the mega growth effect was used as the old uh, old live action alice in wonderland film they would put a dolly into the puppet in front of the blue screen and they superimpose over the background giving the appearance of growth yeah. it's pretty cool good stuff mm-hmm. good, good again stuff. Ha- how things are done now versus how they were done back then and the fact that it still holds up it's just it's cool yeah
0: again the effects in this this film even, like, even that one looks, eh, but it still holds up, cons- all right. things considered, you know. Uh, Damia is trying to radio the quest and gets no answer. While she's doing this, the, mag- the maggot grows gigantic. Damia is cautiously backtracking through the ship before bumping into the maggot. And Oh, boy. This isn't going to end well. Yeah, this this is the scene, the infamous maggot rape scene. Uh, I said we'd circle back to this earlier, and here we are. Mm. There's a lot to unpack here. Um. Stank, before you get into the effects work, I just wanted to touch on some quote-unquote history yes. of how this scene came to be. In the original script, the scene uh, called for Damia to have the monster rip her shirt off and then eat her. However, Corman had promised the financial backers of the film that actress Taffy O'Connell was going to have a sex scene in the film. Um, let me be clear here. A sex scene is not the same as a rape scene. That needs to be said. Mm-hmm. Uh, this led to Corman rewriting her death. Instead, Damia would be attacked by a 12-foot-long maggot with tentacles and slime. The rewrite included full nudity and far more explicit sexual content, including simulated sexual intercourse, uh, during which the giant worm would thrust into her, covering her in excreted slime. Damio would be seen and heard reacting first with terror and then eventually more forced arousal. Um, she would then die at orgasm and just... fucking wild dude like yeah they call these exploitation films for a reason folks. Um,
1: and I don't even think this is very graphic compared to some exploitation films. That's a yeah. crazy part.
0: <laughs> um,
1: still, it is shocking. Um, it is
0: especially you know when you consider the actor. Um, having such a wholesome reputation on top of it. Right. But still, it is a it's a it's, it's a just um, when director Clark and actress O'Connell were informed of the changes, they both balked. Clark adamantly refused to film the scene and O'Connell's agent ordered her to go to her dressing room. O'Connell's agent actually tried to talk her out of the scene, but she actually thought it could be fun and agreed to do the scene for a s- slight pay increase. Corman uh, himself decided to direct the entire sequence and hired a body double for O'Connell to shoot the full nude sequences, parts of which made the final cut, even though it's still O'Connell in front of the camera for almost the entire sequence. This is what actually led to the film's initial X rating. So yeah. let's get into the effects of this. This is the scene, man.
1: So as uncomfortable as this scene was, it kind of it made me have parallels to Forbidden World with Earl sitting there watching them have sex. And I could just see Earl spliced into this scene, sitting there with the space yo-yo.
0: I imagine there's a supercut somewhere of that.
1: <laughs> it, it's the only thing that made me less uncomfortable about the scene was thinking of that, which was yeah. already uncomfortable in its own right. <laughs> but the uh, Maggie prop was actually too big, and it was ended up being cut and re-sewn to be leaner, but it was still 18 feet high and 5 feet wide. That's a big it, old boy. Right. Girl,
0: it's Maggie, sorry.
1: Well, the aluminum was too expensive, for, uh, was too expensive, so the frame was built with steel instead, which added to the weight. It was built on a gimbal with a dolly to move around, and it weighed over a ton and was attached to chains. Uh, Gillis was inside the prop. During filming, they wheeled the monster over O'Connell, and the floor broke. Someone on set yelled, roll, and she rolled out of the way, and the monster came crashing down. So, could have been a lot worse.
0: Yeah, she could have, um, what's the word I'm looking
1: for? Died. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that the Cast would have probably been like, "Keep rolling," like with the. Uh, I mean, of course, movie. it's a Corman flick. they will just <laughs> use the body double for the rest of the movie. Right, uh, Cameron was pissed because the floor was supposed to be reinforced.
0: Dude, <laughs> I mean, there's there's not a whole lot that you you can say about this scene that the scene just doesn't say for itself. I don't, so I don't find the scene itself uncomfortable. I just find it like absurd and. I mean, when you really consider the rest, the tone of the rest of
1: the movie, unnecessary. It's very different than how this film plays out. Like, if this would have been in Forbidden World, I'd have understood. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So,
0: all right. Back to the ship. Uh, Ranger and the cook still can't find the captain. Uh, Core says that one of the retro cannons were fired and we established the quest is on an emergency manual before discovering that Core is gone until he then reappears and then knocks out Ranger. Uh, The cook finds the captain firing the cannons and tells her to stop and dump some exposition about her and her past. We find out that she saved his life. At the Hesperus mission, uh, he tells her that there is no attack because she's like hallucinating Mm -hmm. the Hesperus mission and uh, keeps firing before grabbing a rifle and then heading out. Ranger catches up to the cook he says someone knocked him out. I mean, who could it have been? <laughs> Cook says he hadn't seen anyone. And then we see the captain's death on the monitor. So the captain's death here.
1: I, I figured there was something with it. I couldn't find much on it. But you kind of filled me in. that The reason the captain's death was so anticlimactic and fast was that it was budgetary constraints. Um, that it was initially a different death scene originally planned for captain. Uh, however, it would have been too expensive, so they decided to just light her on fire. Uh, the thing I did notice, though, was the makeup effects were actually quite good. Um, looked like there was a lot of gelatin used. And at first, I thought it might have been a, a dummy or a body double kind of thing, until I realized, without giving away too much of the ending, when you see, again, that it was actually just her in makeup. And at that point, I it made me more impressed. But again, gelatin was used, as, a, and we still use it today for a lot of things, It's a very cheap alternative to foam latex and silicones, but it has, just like any material we use, it has its own issues, limitations, but when you're slathering somebody in it, it looks really cool because it's very translucent. It can get sticky-looking, wet-looking, melty, So, and it did perfect for the scene.
0: Actually, I, I, I tried to look up what the original death scene was supposed to be in my research, and I found nothing. Oh, okay. I, I had no idea what the original death was supposed to be. I just know that, you know, and whatever it was, was too expensive mm. to do. So, uh, and when you consider some of the effects in this movie, well, what the hell was it? You know what I mean? Mm. Um, back in the facility, the crew find Damien's body. Bailon then torches her and they head back to the ship. Ranger tells the crew that everything is good and they might be safe. Aluma says they're like snipers. and They pick them off one by one. That's it's obvious there's no survivors and they should leave. Balon says he doesn't run from fights. Uh, Core then wants to go with them when they go back out. They all agree, and we head back to the pyramid, this time with Ranger and the cook in tow. Uh, we establish that Ranger does not trust the cook. The crew make their way through a corridor and into a room with a giant butthole in the middle of it, um, because that is exactly what that room looks like, a giant butthole.
1: I mean, am I wrong? No, I just I I thought the room also had a lot of strong resemblances to Alien, or like the Alien sets, aliens sets, you know, a lot of very Yeah, I was getting ready to say very organic looking, like very organic alienscape,
0: like an organic butthole,
1: alien organic,
0: an alien organic butthole. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> they then turn around and tells Cabern that uh, she isn't going in there. It's too tight. Yes. The giant butthole is too tight. Aluma asks him if he's afraid, and he says he's too scared to be afraid, but that's that's what she asked. So, weird. Anyway, they kiss. Apparently they've been in a romantic relationship this entire time. We're just finding out. Cut back to Balon, who starts firing like a madman. He's really becoming unhinged here. Like, he was a total dick to begin with, but he's actually losing it. And the changes, if you go back, are very subtle, mm-hmm. but it's definitely happening. They all slide down the butthole slides, and in the process, Aluma loses her backpack and shoulder lights. They make it to the bottom, and Cabrin comforts her. She says, "It nearly got her. Uh, what it is, I don't know." Really awesome shot of whatever room they wound up in. Nice, clean, wide shot. The design is awesome. Core says, "What a magnificent piece of work," and I'm inclined to agree. Mm. Obviously, this is some sort of matte painting blue screen effect. It's awesome. Um, Aluma says uh, it's still there, and they remind Balon of his backpack that he left laying on the ground. We hear this kind of roar noise, and there's this nice silhouette of something on the wall that only Balon can see and hear. As they're walking along the bridge, there are claws on the underside of it, which reminds me of the scene of the, the troll and Willow. Ooh. For some reason, I just like, ah, Willow. Um, yes. And anyway, it's climbing across, following following all of them. Then it knocks Ranger over, uh, who then blames Balon. Balon doesn't even try to explain it. He's completely silent before telling them to go ahead and he'll catch up. Uh, And I'm sure they will be thrilled to be rid of him. The crew get across, and the door starts to close. Uh, The cook shows them a device that he found on the wall that operates the door, which also lights a triangle on the, I think it's the ceiling, Mm-hmm. Um, they shut the door all the way, but Balon is still on the bridge. Balon is now in the darkness and keeps hearing sounds. We get a quick glimpse of this creature in the darkness. At the last second, it pops out to attack Balon and then disappears. and eventually pops back up and rips him to shreds. Let's talk about the gore effects
1: here, my friend. So apparently there wasn't enough time or money to design proper gore effect for this scene. So they just did blood and things like that, maybe some latex. Uh, but they use animal, in, real animal intestines from a local store. Solid. We've done that. Yes, yeah, I'll say we've been there too. So sometimes it's easier and cheaper. It is just awful.
0: Yeah. Uh, something to note here that I think is really awesome: Balon's body falling down like the endless pit of whatever the hell it is is actually mm. a GI Joe doll being thrown over a ledge and being filmed at 300 frames per second. Yeah, that's bad. yeah. So, but I, I did want to talk about something that I uh, you mentioned in your notes to me that you didn't know what this death had to do with his
1: fears. Yeah, I, I must have missed something or I didn't catch something. Why the xenomorph like alien character was creature, I should say, uh, was his fear.
0: So here's the thing for me. <clears throat> and, you know, this is like this is the first time you've saw you've seen Galaxy of Terror, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I have the benefit of hindsight of seeing it a thousand fucking times. Um this is how I always interpreted this. Because for me it's obvious that it, what his fear is and why this plays into it. Balon's major characteristic, um, for me, is he's a take on anything kind of person, mm. and seemingly he has this constant need to prove himself to himself and everybody around him. Mm-hmm. He he all but admits it when uh, um, he refuses aid, uh, basically, and says that what is the line from earlier? Um, if there's something to find here, I'll find it myself.
1: Right. Okay. Like when
0: when we first meet him, um, he's always refusing advice from the crew. So the thing with the monster that he's fighting is it's like the shadow monster. He's the only one that can hear it. He can't see it. He can't fight it. And he's basically helpless. And that's his biggest fear, being helpless. Uh,
1: okay, that makes sense.
0: So, that, I mean, for me, it, again, I might I might benefit from just having seen it so many times. But for me, just it's like, oh, well, that's that totally checks out.
1: Okay, yeah. From a first time view and struggling to get through this film for me, it definitely, that was lost on me. So,
0: I mean, and we'll, we'll talk about the the point the the concept of struggling to get through the film at the end of it, because I got some things to say about that too. Um, the crew gets the doors open and Bailon is gone. Ranger is pissed at Core, who has disappeared. Cabron says, forget him. And Aluma says that she hates this place. Ranger says he keeps seeing something and then nothing. Uh, Cabron tells them to stay close. Cabron tells Ranger that if he sees something, to say something. And Ranger freaks out and goes awful on him. This is a really awesome scene. And mm-hmm. anyone just chooses all of the scenery in the scene. He's he's just great in this scene. Um, Oh yeah, Aluma steps through the glowing triangle thing and winds up in this greenish room, and then it disappears. Cameron follows but can't find her. Same for Ranger. Again, sound design here is awesome. Um, So, all you listeners at home, this is about to get really really confusing. So stick with us because everything's kind of intercut, and I'm just going to go through it as to how it plays on the film. Um, The three are separated as they go through various strange corridors. Ranger is grabbed by himself. We then cut to Aluma and Cabrin that and they find each other, though they're on separate sides of like a translucent wall. And then we cut back to Ranger, who's kicking his own ass. I'm kicking my ass, DMI. Evil Ranger slices Good Ranger's arm. And then we go back to Aluma, who finds a long circular corridor with a white light at the end of it and the wind is blowing. She hesitates but eventually goes in. Cabron sees this through the translucent wall. We cut back to the Rangers fighting, except that there's like one scene where it's obviously not Mm -hmm. Robert England like superimposed. It's just a completely different actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good Ranger shoots Bad Ranger, and he notices there's no blood and no guts and says it can't be real and realizes that he's been fighting himself before the Bad Ranger disappears. And Mm -hmm. I mean that metaphorically speaking. Like, obviously, he's literally been fighting himself, but he means in metaphor, he's been fighting himself this entire time. Exactly. Cut back to Aluma, who is now in this corridor of wires, which all snap onto her. Really, really cool death scene here. Aluma's screaming for uh, Cabron, but uh, she gets crushed to death. Nice head explosion. Cabron finds Ooh. her body. Unload on me on this death scene.
1: Oh, for one, with the cables that they, you know, again, it goes back to the old trope of just the reverse. The cables already wrapped around, but it it, it just works so well. You it's know, you can't. Exactly. You can't get, a, get away from that. It's just a good way to do it. Two, <clears throat> I thought there, there were a few parallels when you saw her stomach moving around to the chest Buster scene from Alien, which I really appreciated. And then um, I still say that the head explosion on this was one of my favorite effects in the whole film. Yeah. It was just so solid. And uh, what I didn't know, which you informed me on, was that the head was actually filled with canned uh, beef stew and chili, which whatever works and whatever's cheap. So... Dinty more, son. Ranger catches up
0: to a distraught uh, Cabron. I really love that there's just wind blowing here for a while. There's no music. Mm -hmm. It's just the sound of the wind. Good mood. Ranger comforts Cabron, and they make their way to a really cool looking room. Ranger explains that his own fears attacked him, brought to life by this place. Cabron tells him there's no horror here, but what they create themselves, which I picked up, you know, again, Cameron, parallel, there's no fate but what we make. Terminator, kind Mm -hmm. of the same line. Um, he says it's finished. Core appears and says, "Finished. There's hardly been a beginning." Awesome sequence of Cabron walking up some steps that appear and disappear when you step on them, which really immediately gives me traumatic flashbacks to trying to beat Castlevania. Uh, <laughs> Cabron finds Core sitting in the middle of a, the room of, of a room. It's like uh, the room, kind of again, Star Wars reminded me of, like the egg. That Mm. Darth Vader is sitting in, in Empire, um, where I guess it's the only thing he can breathe in or whatever before his helmet comes on. Like, obviously not a back-to-tank, but like the weird egg thing he's in. And it's revealed that he knew what this place was the entire time, as his head lights up red. Cabron fires at him, and that fails. Cabron says he'll find a way to kill him. Uh, Kor says, perhaps, and explains that Cabron has already won the game after showing such control of his emotions and fear and that the pyramid is a toy designed to show people their deepest fears and teach them to control them. who says he knows this because this is where he became the master. He tells Cabron that his crewmates could have lived if they had chosen how Cabron had chosen until now. The room then lights up red, and a creature appears. Cabron does a really sweet forward flip, and uh, he and the monster struggle. Tentacles get him, but he shoots them off. He gets free, but attach them above. There's another sweet kung fu flip. Uh, and he takes that one out Cayman's the man who also suddenly learned Kung Fu. Yeah, I,
1: uh, it was very Power Rangers.
0: There's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> I say, as a Power Rangers fan. Um, the red light then turns blue and all of his dead crewmates are there. This scene fucking rolls.
1: That was cool. It is yes.
0: unsettling as shit.
1: I, I It reminded me, and not to say that because the, the other movie came out, it reminded me of shots from Dead Alive, Brain Dead when you were seeing all of the main characters as zombies coming back with the backlight. Yeah. And, you know, it was a very good looking scene.
0: Yeah. It's, it's very, very cool scene. So his crewmates attack him, but our dude Cabron does a backwards flip this time. He's now he's throwing karate kicks and roundhouses, but he's eventually overtaken. The crew then disappears and he comes to after hearing a call his name, he awakens to her, striking his face but he immediately scurries away and she pursues him. There's a really cool scene here as she goes to kiss him, but then begins to choke him. He rips at her clothes and it shows like alien skin underneath. And then we're back to like him and core in the middle of the room. Uh, Cabron tells him now it's just them. Core tells him that he can't find the rage to kill him though. He is the same man that he was before. There is some kind of power exchange. Core tells him uh, he has only killed an old man and is now the master. Uh, Cabron asks if he can leave but Core tells him he would doom his world if he does. Cabern shoots Core, and his face lights up red. We end on a cool shot of the pyramid. Um, Ranger being the only person to figure out how to win would then go on to become a dream demon as
1: a reward. Out of everything, what happened to Ranger? They never showed. It was just, okay.
0: I like to think he's just still sitting at the bottom of the steps waiting for Cabern to come out. That's fine. I feel like he's a really dedicated friend, so. (laughs) anyway snack what's your take man lay it on me um
1: it's a hard one for me like i said i had struggles getting through it um it's a very slow burn in the beginning but not necessarily a good slow burn um there's definitely some solid acting and some awful acting Uh, england to me definitely stole the show Haig stole the show the tonality of the film is so up and down hit and miss like we discussed the magazine would have been better for forbidden world when everything was so deadpan serious, you know, I did see the ending coming as core being the big bad and that, but I did appreciate it. And to be honest, the whole last 15 minutes of the film made the whole runtime worth it. Because again, you go from people based in reality, doing normal stuff, fighting normally to guys flipping 15 feet in the air over giant monsters. But that's the kind of B movie schlock I like. Um, one thing that I read and I also noticed right away was there were definitely tie-ins to Event Horizon Paul W. S. Anderson. And it really makes me wonder as a filmmaker and knowing his background, was this something that inspired him for Event Horizon? You know, the whole uh you using your own fears against you, blah, blah, blah. And one that I honestly just thought of before. Uh, without putting this in the notes, was the movie Sphere with um, Sharon Stone. So clearly the film, if it indeed had inspiration for these future movies, it did something and it did enough. But again, at the time, clear ripoffs of so many things, which is typical of Corman. Um, I would probably give it a five or six out of 10. Cameron stuff, great. Everything he did, everything he touched, great. You know, acting from the actors that we get was really great you know it's just it's one of those things where i have a hard time really saying i'm going to put this in my rotation whereas i told you with forbidden world it's that movie that i can just throw on in the background and really just enjoy
0: so i've got some things to say about this movie galaxy of terror you know obviously it's really slow burn really slow burn uh i think at the end it's worth it i said on the forbidden world episode that i love this movie and i mean that It can be a difficult watch when you're not in the mood, but so can Alien. And that film's revered. Um, I do think that Galaxy achieves what it sets out to do with respect to being more psychological and actually turns out to be a pretty solid character study on how we deal with fear, isolation, and the unknown. It's almost Lovecraftian in that sense, which gets back to your point about uh, Event Horizon, because I know that Lovecraft was a big influence on Paul L.S. Anderson and his film. This flick is way smarter than the marketing would have you realize or the tag of exploitation and B movie would have you believe. And I think it really mm. deserves more credit than it gets. Um, so with that said, I would say the good BD Clark's direction on this is really great. It's only helped by the superb work of a young Jim Cameron. You can watch this film then you can go watch things like the Terminator and aliens. And it really feels like I said earlier, like a proof of concept for Jim Cameron of where he was going. Mm. And he really came off as having something to prove because he did. Um, and sometimes to be said that we talk about Jim Cameron's involvement in this movie more than we talk about the director and co-writer B.D. Clark. Um, Clark didn't do anything after this, and he was the co-writer and director of this, and we all just talked about Jim Cameron's involvement. I would say the cast is phenomenal across the board. Uh, I didn't feel like there was a single bad performance in the entire film, and there's it's kind of a who's who genre and television actors. The, uh, the score and sound design were stellar. Barry Schrader does a great job complimenting what's on the screen and is oftentimes has a really unsettling score. Uh, the bad, to be honest, I don't think there's a whole lot that is, you know, objectively bad about the movie. I feel like sometimes the editing is a bit off, specifically the opening space travel scenes where they go into hyperspace. It's just really too many cuts and just unsettling in a bad way. Like, like I don't wanna watch this, it hurts my eyes. Um, the pacing is methodical. Um, I can see how some would think that it's a bit slow in plotting. Uh, It's definitely not helped by the opening scene, which being the one after the Terminator bit where the Master and uh, Mitri are talking, we're just kind of dropped into this conversation with no context between some weird-looking characters that could possibly confuse a new viewer and set them off on the wrong foot. Um, I will say that you can see Cameron, not Cameron, I'm sorry, uh, Corman's ideas and his fingerprints being the maggot scene. As famous as this scene is, it doesn't fit in this fucking movie. It just doesn't. Um, I think it actually, in terms of uh, the greater picture of an entire movie, it hurts the film more than it helps, but I see why it was there then. Um, With that said, I think I would probably give Galaxy an 8 out of 10. Though some of Corman's demands and decisions might clash with the story that Clark and Siegler wanted to tell, it ultimately is a great watch and serves as one of the better films of the genre. So there you have it, folks. It's Galaxy of Terror. Um, I'm glad you finally watched it, Mr. Stank. I would hope that you I'm glad I watched it. Consider watching Battle Beyond the Stars and uh, Star Crash. Uh, Those are are both more science fiction fantasy than they are horror, but they're awesome. Mm -hmm. So, in closing, um, I would ask that all of you lovely listeners and viewers, uh, go follow us on social media, on Twitter at MMMonsterCast, on Instagram at ManMadeMonsterCast, on Facebook at ManMadeMonsterCast. We are on Patreon at manmade made monster cast it is not required but if you are so kind it is greatly appreciated give us a like give us a follow give us a sub give us a thumbs up um give us a high five um uh, yeah leave a five star we really appreciate it uh mr stank where can they find you on social media uh
1: facebook under my name mark wenger instagram and twitter under x papa underscore stank x
0: Fantastic! Uh, you can find me on Twitter at r0b underscore 138 on Instagram at r0b138. For Pop Stank, I have been Rob138 with Mad Made MonsterCast. And we will catch on the flip side. Everybody was kung fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought